Well, this morning is the first Sunday in Advent, and at Affirmation, we don't always hold strictly to the church calendar, but we find it a helpful tool for our Christian life and for our life as a church. There's no sin in not observing Advent, for example, but it seems like a wise thing to do, to set our hearts in preparation for the celebration of Christmas. And in the so the church calendar begins now. Uh, uh, this this season begins uh, the new church calendar. And Advent is a is a wonderful season. It's a season the four Sundays prior to Christmas, and it's a season of looking forward in anticipation of the celebration of Christmas. But it's one that requires us to do a, a little bit of mental gymnastics, because in the one hand we kind of place ourselves back in the Old Testament perspective. And we read Old Testament texts that are looking forward to the coming of Messiah. And we stand, if you will, kind of in their shoes and we look forward and we can, we can delight in the anticipation that they had of coming Messiah. And this helps us understand when we celebrate Christmas what it is exactly we are celebrating. Yes, we're celebrating Emmanuel, God with us, but we're celebrating the, the long expected fulfillment of all the hopes of those within the Old Testament. And so it's good to step back into the Old Testament and see things from that perspective. However, we don't just do this as a mental exercise. We do it as habit formation. We do it so that we can train our hearts to long as the Old Testament saints longed for the coming of Messiah because we also long for his coming. And so the season of Advent is a time, this is why I mentioned earlier, that in Advent churches tend to read a text on the second coming. Because in that sense, our standing is analogous to those in the Old Testament in that we also are looking forward with great anticipation and longing. We're longing for his coming just as they were longing for his coming. The difference is we stand on the other side of his first coming. I mean, in some sense, the 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 anticipation and the excitement has heightened. It's been ratcheted up because we have seen him come in the incarnation, and therefore we know the day is near. As Paul says to uh, the Romans, actually the, in, the, in the lectionary, the, uh, the epistle reading for today was Romans chapter 13, and that's where Paul says, you know, let us not behave as we did in the night, but let us live as in the day, for the dawn is already coming. The light is beginning to appear over the horizon. You know, we're not in sort of the darkness of the Old Testament anymore, looking for the day when the first beam of sun will come over the horizon, but it has broken that the, the day star, the day spring from on high has come. Christ has been born and, and crucified and risen, and therefore new creation is beginning to dawn in the horizon. And so there's a, there is a, yes, we're in an analogous place to the Old Testament, but in some sense, we're just so radically different than they are because again, day has begun to dawn. So, so the season of Advent is a time to go back and stand in the Old Testament, look forward to what Christmas represents, but all of that so that we are prepared in our moment of time to look forward in anticipation for the coming of our Savior again. So that's what Advent is. So sometimes we use Old Testament text, sometimes new. In this season of Advent, we are going through, as Mark mentioned, the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah has several of these poems um, they call them songs, whether or not they were sung, who knows, but, but they're, they're, they are 
poems, if you will, they're poetic anyway, about the coming servant of the Lord who is going to set all things right. And so we're taking that up today, breaking away from 1 Corinthians for a little bit and spending some time on Advent. Then we'll have a couple Sundays celebrating Christmas, uh, reflecting on the incarnation itself, and then returning back to 1 Corinthians and making our way through the church year. Our text today on page 641 is Isaiah 42, where again, we have this servant song where the Lord announces the coming of his elect one, the coming of his servant. The text was read for us this morning as our Old Testament reading, so I won't read it all again, but we'll get it as we work our way through the text. And I want us again to place ourselves in the in the position of Isaiah, who's writing 700 plus years before the coming of Christ, as he writes this, having no idea of whom he writes, but nonetheless by the Spirit of the Lord, writing about a coming servant who is going to come and set all things right. And then remembering it was 700 years. Had you been there when Isaiah read this, you'd, you'd be so excited, you know? And it was 700 years before we were going to begin to get the first inaugural uh, fulfillment of this text in the birth of the Lord. The Lord is not the Lord does not operate quickly unless he chooses to but uh, but he takes his time. what is it what is a thousand years as is as a day to the Lord and so he announces this as if it's right around the corner but it is as certain as that. So I want us to think about this text this morning about this servant who we know we as as Peter says, we get to see what the prophets long to see. They would love to have seen who this is that's being spoken of. You and I know what a privileged position we are in. But let's stand back in Isaiah's shoes and let's reflect on what he is coming to do, who he is and what he's coming to do. So I want us to think this morning about the identity of the servant, the mission of the servant, the tone of the servant's ministry and the success that he is promised to have. So that's what we'll look at in this text. So first, let's think about his identity. I love the word behold in the Bible, and this text begins this way. Behold, exclamation mark. <laughs> Just, it's it, end, end of sentence. Behold, look. And it's not, you know, the word behold doesn't just communicate look. I mean, the word hold is in it. You know, it's, it's not just look, n- notice, it's behold, it's delight in, it's apprehend. You know, it's, it's, it's chew on the fact, like just contemplate it. All of that, I think, is contained in behold. And I love the word behold because he points us here to see something. Behold my servant. Now, remember, again, we're 700 years before the servant is coming, but prophetically, he's putting it in the present. Look. And again, here we stand on the other side of Christmas, and we actually do get to look. It's what we should be doing every Sunday. It's what we should be doing every day of our life, you know, fixing our eyes, as the author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes upon the Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I mean, if you could just take anything out of the sermon today, just take that word and run with it. Just take it home with you. Behold look, contemplate, delight in, meditate on the servant whom God the Father is upholding. 
And the, the image that comes to my mind when I hear this, like, who is this one? What do you mean? This servant of the Lord. My mind goes right to Revelation 5, when in, in Revelation 5, John is weeping because no one has been found worthy to open the scroll in the right hand of God or to loose its seven seals. Like there's no one throughout the entire span of the Old Testament who has been able to fulfill this text. Like where is he? We've been looking for him since the days of Adam. And was it Adam? No. Is it Cain? No. Is it Noah? Nope. Abram? Nope. Moses? Nope. David? No. Nope. I mean, just all of the all of the great men, the possible men who maybe would be the one we've been looking forward to have all proven to be losers. The great men, no doubt, but they've all been failures. They've been unable to bear the burden of being the servant of the Lord. And John in Revelation 5 kind of works through that whole span of the Old Testament. Like, where is, is there anyone worthy? We searched in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, he said, and no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seals. And then the elder says to John, do not weep. Behold, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed and he is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And, and John turns to see this lamb and he sees, excuse me, this lion and he sees a lamb standing as if slain. So who is this servant of the Lord? Well, we know it is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It is the, the root of the shoot, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, of the root of David. It is the lamb slain yet standing. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold my servant whom I uphold. We'll come back to that for a second because the guarantee of his success comes in this. He is the servant that the Father himself will uphold. Now, I will also say one other thing about the servant. When you read Isaiah, and if you read the servant songs, you will end up with a little bit of, wait a second, who is this servant that's being written of? Because sometimes it will sound, you will clearly recognize it to be Jesus right here, okay? especially with texts like Matthew 12 that Mark read as our New Testament reading, where Matthew is saying, yep, remember that text? Yep, here it's being fulfilled, right here in Jesus. There's the guy. But other times when you read the, the servant songs, it sounds like the servant is Israel. And there's this play back and forth, right? Who is the servant of God by which light is going to come to the Gentiles? And the one hand, it was Israel. That's why Israel is called to be, you know, remember to Abraham, through you, Abraham, and your descendants, all the nations are going to be blessed, right? Israel is to be the light of the world, if you will. But notice down in verse 18, now I know it's not in our text, but we read the whole chapter this morning. Listen over to, to verse 18. Hear you, deaf. And look, you blind, that you may see who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send. And then he's going to go on and say, you know, Israel, my servant, didn't recognize what I was doing for them. I was doing all these things, but they, they turn a blind eye. They stop up their ears. This has been the, the word of the prophets to Israel over and over and over again. Like, turn from your idols, repent, and turn to me. But my servant has been blind. My servant has become deaf. Now, I mention this because 
if we ask the question, well, who is the servant of the Lord being spoken of here? Is it Israel or is it Jesus? The answer is yes. Yes, it is Israel. But this is why it's Jesus, because Jesus is the representative of Israel. He comes in and fulfills for Israel her task, a task that she was not up to fulfilling, a task that she had consistently refused to do. Her representative comes in the servant of the Lord, the true, the capital E, if you see back up in verse one, the capital E, elect one, who will come for the elect people of God and do for them what they ultimately could not do for themselves, nor could they do for the world. For they themselves took on the blindness of the world. They they took on the deafness of the Gentiles. They took on the darkness of the nations. Rather than being light to the nations, they took on the darkness of the nations. They took on the sin of the nations. And, And you can see this in the story of the kings, when the kings of Israel they start to look just like pagan kings and they're making treaties with pagan kings and not trusting in the Lord. And they're marrying all these different women and building altars to their gods. And they become like the nations. They absorb the darkness of the nations. And so the servant, small s, if you will, servant of the Lord fails. Just like every other person we went, I went through in that little run through the Old Testament. No one is found worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seven seals. Great cause for weeping. Until this one comes, my capital S servant, if you will, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. So his identity is that one chosen by God, representative of Israel, and therefore representative of all mankind, that he might come and set things right. Now, what's his mission, the mission of this elect one? this one that God has chosen to do his work. Well, here we're told, again, in the end of verse 1, he is my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Sorry, I'm reaching for my phone here because I have a quote I want to read. Um, And I I got this in in listening to uh, Sinclair Ferguson on this text. And he referenced this little poem from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which, um, which I think is very fitting and good here. But Sinclair, actually Sinclair, the reason he references this, this uh, little poem in the middle of, of uh, the Narnia series, as I, I, don't, I forget who's talking here, whether it's, uh, uh, I think it's a poem that's handed down within Narnia. And I, I don't know if this is where uh, the beavers are giving it to Lucy or where this comes in the story, I forget. But the idea was that Aslan is going to come and he's going to set all things right. And the point that Ferguson was making on this case is when he says he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, he does not just mean he's going to punish all the bad guys. That will happen, no doubt. But the justice that the Lord is going to bring, it's not just that he's going to set the scales right, but he's going to set all things right. That is to say, he's going to make all things the way they were meant to be. Which is more than just punishing bad guys. right? that's, That's negative in the sense that we have to deal with the wrongs that have been done. They need to be punished. Okay, that's fine. But Sinclair actually he he tell he uses a painting as an illustration. But I mean, let's just take let's take somebody, somebody is murdered. 
right? So somebody's murdered and, and then the police say that we caught the guy that did it. You know, a family member of yours is murdered and they catch the guy that did it and they bring him into the court and they run him through the trial and they sentence him and they convict him. And in fact, they find they give him the death penalty. And someone turns to you and they say, well, at least you've gotten justice. Now that's hollow, man. That's cold comfort. Really cold comfort. It's like, yes, I mean, it is comfort, right? Better than the guy never being caught. Okay, good to have the guy caught and dealt with and punished accordingly, appropriately, according to the law. Great, but cold comfort because at the end of the day, that's not what you're longing for. You're not just longing to see bad guys get theirs. What you're longing for is the person that the murderer took from you brought back to you. That's the justice. That's the things being set rightness that our souls long for. Our souls don't just long to see Adolf Hitler have to face the judge one day. I mean, it's not like that's, yes, that's a good thing. It's a right thing. But that's not ultimately what our souls are longing for. Our, our souls are longing for righteousness to reign. Our, our souls are longing to have things set right the way they were intended to be. That's what we long for. And so when he says he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, it doesn't just mean, oh, the Gentiles are going to have to stand and give an account. I think Israel read it that way. I think that's why they look down their noses at the Gentiles. Right, they're going to get theirs one day. You know, but it's much more than that. This is actually good news to the Gentiles. This is good news to all the world. That's why. This is why when in the Bible it talks about the judgment of God, Christians don't read those things. The psalmist didn't hear, oh no, he's coming to judge the earth. Oh no. You know, and, and start trembling. When the psalmist heard that he's going to judge the world in equity and righteousness, they celebrated. They started to sing. Get the horns and the trumpets out. We need to, we need to strike up the band. This is good news. He's going to set things right. I'll give you the little quote. It's, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a Narnian poem here. Uh, uh, more than a C.S. Lewis. So the, the rhyme is, the, the rhyming in the poetry is a little simple. But nonetheless, the point is worth being made because you'll remember that in Narnia, if you remember your Narnia at all, and if you don't remember your Narnia, shame on you, and go read, go read, uh, go read C.S. Lewis. It's good for your soul. Uh, but you'll remember that the way that the, the way that the region of Narnia, Narnia is under a curse, and the way that the curse is stated is that it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. It's always winter, but it's never Christmas. The White Witch has has been given reign over the land of Narnia and she has placed Narnia under a curse and her wicked rule is tyrannizing the land and it's always winter and it's never Christmas. But the hope of Narnia is that the great lion, right, Aslan, is going to come and he is going to set all things right. And when the children get to Narnia and they meet the beavers, they're told that Aslan is on the move. And this has everybody... You know, very excited because Aslan is on the move. And here's the poem that they're, this is the, this is the poem that they're handing down generation to generation to generation to remind themselves to be encouraged in the midst of a Christmasless winter, an ongoing winter. And it says this, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight 
At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. When he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. When he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. One will come and he will set things right. He will bring Christmas to winter. He will bring spring and new life to bear upon Narnia. And that is what the the Lord is saying here in Isaiah 42. He's going to come and he is going to bring forth justice. Now, if you go down to the bottom of our text, down to verse 7, I'll go to verse 6, you see another dimension to this justice. So he's going to bring justice. He's going to set all things right. And by the way, that does mean punishing the evil. I mean, go read the end of Revelation. I I don't want to exclude that. The bad guys need to face theirs. Now, don't forget you're a bad guy. Okay. So, so this is a, this, this, that's a little cause for trembling. But, but again, this brings us back to what this servant does. And we're going to need more text to explain this. But the reason we can delight in the coming judgment is because believe it or not, this judgment, this uh, servant actually takes the judgment that you deserve. You know, he has stepped, he has become the bad guy. For you, he who knew no sin became sin for you, that you through him might become the righteousness of God. And so, yes, it's important that that justice gets served. We just need to have a bigger vision of justice. And again, you get that a little bit in terms of deliverance down in verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you. Now here he's speaking to the servant. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give you as a covenant to the peoples and light to the Gentiles. See, this is, this is good news for the world. Because this is good news for Israel, through Israel, it's to the world because Israel was called to be a blessing to all the nations. So if he comes to do Israel's job, namely bear the curse, that's good news for the Gentiles who are dwelling in darkness. So I brought you as a light to the Gentiles. Notice verse 7, to open blind eyes. We're going to hear in verse 18 how even my own servant has become blind. But but this servant is going to come and he is going to open the blind eyes. He's going to bring out prisoners from their prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. He's going to establish justice and he is going to do it by delivering, by restoring. Your sin has made you blind. Your sin has made you deaf. Your sin has made you a prisoner but I'm going to come and deliver you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you into what you are meant to be. And my mind here, when I hear this, goes to Romans 8, 29, when he says, you are predestined that you might be conformed to the image of his son. That is the, what's happening to you right now, even as I'm preaching, this is happening to you and to me, is we by the Holy Spirit are being conformed to the image of his son. We are being restored by the power of the Spirit to be what God has meant us to be. This is being fulfilled right in our midst. You are seeing, your vision is coming into focus um, as you go through your, and one day in glory, it will be perfect 2020 spiritual vision. And you are coming out of your prison and you're coming out of your darkness. All that is happening to us because of the work of the servant of God. So who is he? He's the elect one, the root of David, the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb slain yet standing. His mission is to bring justice, robust, full, restorative justice. Now, let's think thirdly about the tenor or the tone of his ministry. And this is interesting. 
Behold my servant in whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Now, here's something we have to balance in the Bible. We have to read two. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, you know, you read that one. The nations are conspiring against him. God's in heaven laughing. He anoints his king upon his holy hill. And then the psalm writer turns to everyone looking and seeing how God has set his servant, his king upon his holy hill. And then he says, let me tell you something. Kiss the son, lest you be dashed to pieces. For he will smash the nations with an iron scepter. You know, kiss the sun lest you perish in the way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. So you have that image of him dashing the nations to pieces. And you have this image, a smoldering flame. It's, a, it's, the, it's the image of this one who comes up and there you are in the metaphor of a little flame that has dwindled down and there's not much left there. Very few embers are glowing, but just a little smoldering wick. That's what you're, that's sometimes you feel like that. Sometimes your Christian life feels like that. Life in general just feels like it's dwindled down to a smoldering wick. You have nothing in your hands to bring. You know, you're, you're, you're weak and you feel pathetic. You feel like you have nothing. And, and notice how this amazing King of Kings who's going to bring justice to the nations, deals with it. He deals with it with tenderness. Gets his hand behind it, lightly blows on it, brings it back, glowing, gets a little tinder bundle in there, brings that thing back to a flame. He does not just put it out. He comes across a reed that's that's damaged by strong weather or maybe by by rough riding animals, you know, and it bends this this reed and it's bruised and it's crimpled over. Very easy just to break it and tear it. He doesn't do that. A bruised reed, he does not break. But he props it up gently, holds it, heals it so that it can begin to grow again. The same king who will, no doubt, it's not just wordplay, will dash the nation to pieces with a rod of iron. Read the end of Revelation. He comes riding on the white horse with the sword out of his mouth, slaying his enemies and bringing justice. Okay, he, This king is that king. Yet, he is Jesus meek and mild. He is Jesus who is tender to the brokenhearted to those who know their weakness, to those who feel the brokenness of life and of sin. He does not smash them with a rod of iron. The arrogant, the proud, the nations who are raging against him, they will be judged. But this king is one who comes at the same time with the rod of iron in his hand and yet props up the tender reed, blows gently upon the smoldering wick. He is the very God, again, going back to the book of Revelation, who will one day come 
himself and wipe away every tear. And that's two times in the book of Revelation it says that. It's not just one time kind of a cute little image. No, no, no. Two times in the book of Revelation it says, and he will come himself, God, and wipe away every tear. There's a tenderness. He loves his people. And that's the tone of the ministry. He's not going to have to come railing against the nations, crying out in the streets, putting on big shows to be heard. No, no, no. He does not do that. In fact, probably if we were his managers, we would have him do that because, Jesus, you got to get a crowd. you got to know how to draw them in, you know. We'd have a big display. We'd have them crying on the streets. We'd at least get them some kind of megaphone. And Jesus, Jesus is so inefficient in his ministry, just traveling around, walking here and there. I mean, his ministry is only three years, and he spends all his time walking. It's like it's just very inefficient. But Jesus doesn't care about efficiency. It's just not Jesus is operating as on a different on a different mindset. Right? And so he will bring justice but not because he's crying out in the streets or demanding to be heard. There's a tenderness to what he does. So his identity, his mission, his tone. And then finally his success. And notice his success has to do with the fact that his father upholds him. Right? Think about, think about the way he begins his ministry. He, he's baptized. And coming out of the waters, the father pours his spirit upon him and then announces, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he anoints him in his humanity with the Holy Spirit. And so also here, behold my servant whom I uphold. Zero chance of failure here. Because the Father is upholding his Son. My elect one, you can almost hear the words of his baptism. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And then he says in verse 4, He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice on the earth. And then down in verse 6, Why won't he fail? Because I, the Lord, have called you. Now he speaks directly to him. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the peoples. Here we see the beautiful union of the Father and the Son. Don't forget the Son bears our humanity, but he is kept by the Father, preserved by the Holy Spirit, the Father upholding him with his strong right hand, walking with him in the midst of all these things. Never is the Son forsaken absolutely or ultimately by the Father. The Father is with him in the midst of all his struggles, and therefore he will have success. It's guaranteed. It's certain. And we've already seen it in the cross, and we know that it is certain to come in the future, which brings us finally then to verse 9, this image of success. And here we have it put in the prophetic present tense for those for whom it would be 700 years and for us for whom it has already been 2,000 and who knows how much longer. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Hey, Israel, here's how confident you can be in what I'm saying. It's as if the bad things are already behind you. Now, again, they were about at this point to go off into slavery. They were literally going to be dragged from their homes and taken out into slavery in Babylon and Assyria and then later Babylon. Bad stuff was about to befall them. 
Yet as they go into the fray, they were to have this ringing in their ears. Don't be discouraged. The former things have already passed away. It's as good as done. It is already behind you. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, it might have been hard to do, to go off into slavery hearing this and kind of banking your hope on it. And especially they didn't know that it would be 700 years. But brothers and sisters, you and I stand on the other side of the fulfillment of this text. We have seen new things that we're told come to pass. And therefore, when we look forward in anticipation of the new things, of that day when he will come and establish justice once and for all, where he will restore all things and set all things right, we can look forward to that with such unbelievable confidence because we have seen the new things already springing into life. New creation has begun in Jesus Christ. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, new creation. We have the new birth in Christ. And we, therefore, can sing a new song. Our text doesn't go to verse 10, but verse 10 is important. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. Even you who go down into the sea and all that is in it. Don't forget the sea often represents the nations and the raging of the nations, and Israel was about to go down into the sea. And even as you do, go down singing. For you know what is true. Life's a vapor. It's only a moment. It's only a minute of time. But you can sing a new song, for you know what the Lord has promised you in and through this elect one of his whom he upholds, the servant of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is why we sing. This is why Christians sing. We sing because we know what is true. We sing because we're not distracted or dragged down by the sea. We don't let the raging of the nations bother us. Now, I say this tongue-in-cheek because it bothers the heck out of me, okay? But it ought not bother us because the former things are already gone. Light is already breaking in among the nations, and we know where our hopes stand. So here we stand on this first Sunday of Advent, looking back, glancing back, and then looking forward with great anticipation to that day when he most certainly will come and complete what he has already begun in the work of Christ in the incarnation. The day is coming, brothers and sisters, when he will do it. And on that that day, we together will all sing a new song, and we can anticipate that in our singing now. Let us pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that light of the world, that capital S servant who has come and done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for him as a king who, on the one hand, will indeed smash those nations that rage against you and that tyrannize your saints. Justice will come to them. And yet at the same time, with gentleness and lowliness and tenderness and love, he can blow upon the smoldering wick. He can, he can prop up the bruised reed. And we felt that here in our own lives. We, we are the smoldering wicks. We're the bruised reeds. 
But Father, the fact that you would love us, the fact that he would prop us up, the fact that he would wipe away our tears is cause for singing, and we do sing. We give you all praise and honor and glory. And we do it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your servant, our Savior. Amen.